Well, my wife, and, uh, Amanda, and I uh, went on a holiday a few months ago to Florida, a vacation by the sea, and the ocean was teeming with sea life. Dolphins and, and manatees and stingrays and fish of all kinds down there in Florida. And, of course, sharks. The place where we go to is actually a breeding ground for sharks. I'm not quite sure why we go there for our vacation, but every time I'm in the sea... Um, I, I'm thinking of these sharks. A shark attack is, is rare, but my mind is always drawn to that movie Jaws. You remember that? The, and some of us are old enough to remember the original movie uh, Jaws. Uh, in that original movie, there's a, a memorable scene where the, the three main characters, the three men, go out on a little fishing boat to catch this great white shark who's been killing everyone. And the three men descend uh, below deck one evening and over dinner and drinks, they begin to show one another their scars, you know, their, their shark bite scars. It's a kind of proving of, of manhood, as it were. Who had the most and worst scars was the, was the biggest man. And as I was pondering this text in 2 Corinthians today, I thought this. Imagine if the Apostle Paul was with those men on that boat. He'd just simply take his shirt off and say, you think you've got scars? Look at these. 39 lashes I received on five different occasions. You know, the pieces of bone on the whip, they just tear the skin away from your bone. Oh, these ones are quite nasty as well. The ones from being beaten by rods, that broke a few bones. Three occasions that happened. But you know, I think the worst, Paul would say, was the stoning. They thought I was dead that day in Lystra. You see, it is hard to be a fisherman but it is much harder to be a fisher of men. In fact, as Paul says in Acts 14, through many tribulations, you must enter the kingdom of God. You see, 2 Corinthians is biographical. I love Christian biographies. I encourage you all to to read them. I love them because we see in the Christian biography what is inside the devoted man or woman of God, what they look like. And so 2 Corinthians is is that in the sense that it gives us a glimpse of the heart of the Apostle Paul and his experience with God personally. 2 Corinthians is about triumph through trials, triumph through trials, so that affliction marks the Christian life. And Paul shows us in 2 Corinthians how affliction and usefulness go together. And that's the major theme of the letter. Triumph through trials, affliction and usefulness. So then the overall emphasis of the letter is expressed in those famous words of God to Paul in chapter 12 and verse 9. You know them. God says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. That's in chapter 12, verse 9. And then Paul's response in the next verse is this. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. God says, my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul says, when I am weak, then I am strong. So that the key, then, to to improving your trials, as it were, in the language of the old men, improving your trials or becoming fruitful through your sufferings, 
is to throw yourself upon the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. Verse 3, that's my main verse today. But before we go into that verse, and you can keep your finger on, on that verse, before we go into that verse, I just want to give you a bit further context about Paul's situation and his afflictions. See, Paul has been suffering external opposition. I've already mentioned those beatings and those, those sufferings. But he's also facing internal opposition within the church. External outside, internal inside. One type of opposition brings those physical wounds. One brings spiritual wounds. And this opposition within the Corinthian church, this is a church that Paul had planted. It's a church he'd visited. It's a church he loved. He loved dearly, but he had needed to rebuke them before. There'd been some progress within the church. There'd been repentance, but there was still a remnant of opposition coming from these so-called super apostles. You can read more about the super apostles in chapters 11 and 12 if you want to do a bit more homework this afternoon. But, but these super apostles, these were, if, we, if you like, uh, prosperity teachers. Uh, they'd infiltrated the church And they promoted a health and wealth and talent as the mark of true ministers of of true Christians. And they were assassinating Paul's qualifications and his character. They criticised Paul. They said, oh, he's, he's weak and he's afflicted in his body. Therefore, he must be in sin. Plus, they say, he's not that great a preacher. And they also say he's unreliable. He said he was coming to us and he didn't. So... They're trying to say that Paul is a fake and he's a flake. See, what had happened is Paul had changed his plans to, to visit the Corinthian church again. He, he'd wanted to come to them and to give them what he calls a, a second experience of, of grace. He says that in, in the second chapter in verse 15. But he didn't come. And so the enemies within the church are now accusing him of, of, of vacillating, of going backwards and forwards. They say, you can't trust Paul and he lacks ability and he's unreliable. He lacks integrity. He says yes in one moment and no the next. So you see what they're doing, these these so-called super apostles. They're stirring up trouble. And some folks, as they do, they believe them. They believe them. This is very painful for Paul. That some that he thought were with him had turned against him so easily. And that is is the case, isn't it? When some who you think are with you turn against you. We recently had our church picnic out in our church in, in Canada. And uh, the little kids, uh, they got together for a game of football. And one of the little ones, seven-year-old, comes up to me. He says, Pastor Gavin, we want you to play with us on our team. So I said, OK, I'll come. And, and I lined up and I've got about six of these little seven-year-olds around me. And, and one of the little guys turns to me and says, he, says, he looks at me and says, with you on our team, we can beat anyone. <laughs> and so we started off against the other little group of seven-year-olds. And we got off to a good start. I picked the ball up, I pushed it past two or three of them, brushed them aside with, with ease and, and hit a shot into the top corner. One nil up we were. It was all going well. And then all of a sudden, from nowhere, all of these other kids started appearing. They all joined the opposition. So we were facing about 20 kids on one side and only seven of us on the other. And then they equalised, 1-1. And then the opposition went 2-1 in the lead, then 3-1 in the lead. And that same little kid that had turned to me earlier turned back to me and says, what are you doing for us? You're doing nothing. (laughs) 
My point is, it's a painful thing when those who you think are with you turn against you. And it's true, though, seriously, isn't it? Have you ever been hurt by words and actions of those you love most and want to be loved by most? I'm sure we've all experienced that. You see, friends' external physical hurt is never quite as bad, is it, as internal spiritual hurt. I think it may be better to be beaten than to be maligned within the church by those closest to you, like our Lord Jesus, stabbed in the back by Judas, denied by Peter. Have you ever been wronged by someone you love? A fellow member in the church, a friend, a spouse, sibling, father or mother, even your own child. In those moments, what is your temptation? I suggest our temptation in those moments is twofold. We're either tempted to retaliate in anger and fear, or we're tempted to shrink back in anger and fear. So kind of fight or flight. In our anger and fear, we want to punish the offender, so justice is done. Or in anger and fear, we want to preserve ourselves so we can't be hurt again, so we punish the offender even by our withdrawal. But what's Paul's response to affliction? What's Paul's response? Well, I suggest he shows a father's heart to the Corinthians. I won't have us turning all over the Bible this morning, but turn to chapter 6 and verse 11, because I think chapter 6 and verse 11 gives us a real insight into Paul's father's heart towards the Corinthians. Chapter 6 and verse 11, he says... We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children. Widen your hearts also. Paul shows great paternal love to the church in Corinth. The problem wasn't with his heart, it was with their heart. Paternal love deserves filial affection in return because good children respect and love their fathers. But the hearts of Paul's spiritual children were restricted. The old language, one of the the commentators says, straightened in your bowels. Straightened in your bowels. Like, Like constipation. There's no room. They needed to open up these Corinthians. Paul was open. They weren't. Suffering and persecution from the outside, cold-shouldered from the church itself on the inside. Surely the last thing you want to do in affliction like this is to open up your heart and give yourself to other people, especially when they're resistant to you. Taking it even more broadly, how is it possible to enlarge your heart and give yourself to others in the midst of the many disappointments you experience in your life, the deep pains that you have in your life at the moment. How is it possible for you this morning to open up your heart and give and not become bitter and withdrawn and angry? The answer is this, because you know your God, friends. Because you know your God and you know him as a father who is rich in mercy and full of comfort in all of your afflictions. That's how you do it. 
And so Paul says in verse 3 of chapter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. There are three ways that Paul addresses God here, but I want us to notice something first. He is the blessed God. Blessed be, Paul says. It's a term of, of praise. In all of his troubles, it's amazing. Paul's response is not grumbling, it's not questioning God, it's worshipping God. He had every reason to be distraught or discouraged. But he is filled with joy and gratitude because of who God is. You know, there has never been a moment, never been a moment where God is not worthy of our praises. You know, the angels are praising him right now. Right now they're praising him. They, they look and they say, he is amazing. He is perfect. He is just. He is holy, holy, holy. Is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Look at him. Look at his wisdom. We must bless his name, friends. How many of your prayers start with, blessed be God? Or do you go straight to asking for his blessings? Sometimes our subjectivity, our self-centeredness is our biggest problem. We rush into the presence of God with our minds on our problems and immediately ask him for things instead of praising him because he deserves it. That's why much of our prayer becomes man-centered, not God-centered. Now, it's not wrong to ask for daily bread, for forgiveness of sins and for protection, but first we've got to hallow his name. You see the structure even in the Lord's Prayer. We, we need to spend more time up there blessing the name of God, hallowing his name. Look at Job, Job in the Old Testament. In the event of massive suffering, he responds with what? Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be God. That has to be our starting point. Always. Worship. Ungrateful, entitled people do not praise God like this, especially in affliction. But a mark of, of spiritual maturity and growing spiritual maturity is the extent to which we have a, a consciousness, a sense of thanks and praise to God. It is the one who bursts forth with, blessed be God, who knows these things. So the more, the more we start with blessing God's name in affliction, you know what will happen is, the more grateful and joyful we become in those afflictions. And that joy then carries us through. And often people who are the most miserable are those who are concerned with getting blessing from God rather than worshipping God himself. They're always thinking of their emotions or problems. And yet the way to be blessed is to forget yourself and look to God, who is the source of blessings. Then your heart can open up. The reason Paul could have that fatherly heart of love towards awkward people and opponents in the church is because his heart is first filled with worship and joy in God the Father. So for the rest of the time then, let's just look at Paul's God in affliction. These three titles by which he refers to God. He calls him firstly God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, the Father of mercies. And thirdly, the God of all comfort. And we'll just take these one by one as we go through. First, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
What had happened to, to Paul on the Damascus Road when he'd been converted? Well, he'd encountered the risen Lord Jesus Christ and he had been saved, the second person of the Trinity. God the Son, who took on flesh, becomes the God-man, lives a perfect life of obedience as a good son to the Father. He goes to the cross in the place of sinners like you and me and Paul and he takes upon himself the punishment for our sin exhausting the wrath of his father in our place there is the gospel and Paul sums it up in 2 Corinthians 5 when he says for our sake he that is God the father made him that is God the son to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Our sin on him, his righteousness credited to us. That is the beauty of the gospel summed up, friends. That is our life. So then through faith in Jesus Christ, the God's son, the God-man, God's own son, through him alone we gain access to God the Father. So when you say, my Lord Jesus Christ, you can call God my father. You're in the family. He's no longer coming to you this morning, if you are a Christian, with the penalty of judgment, but with the love of a gracious father. That's how you've got to see God. If that's the case for you today, you can know then with absolute certainty, absolute certainty, that there's no condemnation for you if you're in Christ Jesus. And that if he did not spend, spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He's done the hardest part, the greatest gift in the universe, the second person of the Trinity, given for you. He's going to give you everything you need then for life and godliness to conform you to the image of the son, including your trials. There is where you have perspective in suffering. It's spiritual gold to know that. And what a joy to know it, friends, when whether you've had a good earthly father or not, you have a perfect heavenly father always. And if you're not a, a Christian, if you're backsliding in your faith, then why resist this father's love in sending his son for you? See, there's far more grace in Jesus Christ than there is sin in any one of us here today. There is far more grace in Jesus Christ. Paul was murdering Christians. Enemy number one to the church. He refers to himself as the worst of sinners. And God forgave his sins because of Jesus Christ's work on the cross. He will do the same for you. Come to him, receive him. So he is God, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is also the father of mercies. The father of mercies. That is, he is the fountainhead. He is the source of all mercy. So, friends, do you realise that our Father is an infinite reservoir of mercy that flows forth to his children? Mercy is angled towards you and me, to the church. We're recipients of mercy and it's infinite. There's not just a little bit. There's not a limited supply. It is infinite. Think of that. All the power and wisdom of God angled towards his children in 
mercy. And you know, they're new every morning, as the scripture tells us. So how can you go to bed tonight, put your head on that pillow, knowing you've got a a week full of problems coming up, a week full of trials, difficulties in the morning. How can you sleep well tonight? Because you know his mercies are new every morning. There's going to be mercy for you tomorrow when you wake up. So you can lay your head on that pillow. You can lay your head in the Father's lap. And you can go to sleep tonight knowing there's mercy coming for you tomorrow. And his mercy will even keep you through the night. It's interesting that so many of the problems we Christians experience in our souls is because we don't see God as lavishly merciful. As lavishly merciful. He's keen to give mercy. We think that he holds back a little bit. And you know, sometimes we don't even get about using our gifts. All of us have been given gifts here, different talents. Instead, we, re- we retreat in spiritual sloth. You remember Matthew 25 and the man who buried his talent in the parable Jesus tells. He doesn't step forward. He doesn't expand his gifts. He, he doesn't take dominion, as it were, and become useful in the kingdom. Why? Because he thought God was a hard taskmaster, not a merciful father. He says, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and hid my talent in the ground. See, the idea is that we too often think of God as harsh and exacting instead of full of mercy. So we don't think there's mercy for us tomorrow. And we think that God's going to hang us out to dry if we make mistakes. And so we don't take godly risks for the kingdom. We shrink back in fear. All because of our view of the character of God. What about when we sin? What about when we sin? Like the father in the parable of the prodigal son. God comes running to meet his wayward child who is returning. You see that? He is keen to give mercy as we return. But to receive his mercy, you've got to return to him. Paul knew this, you see. In fact, he knew that the reason for his afflictions and trials was to keep him returning to God in prayer, to keep him dependent on God. He says in verse 8 of of, uh, chapter 1 there, we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. And here's the reason. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God. Amen. See, we're far too strong in ourselves. God wants to weaken us that we might rely on him. Then we will be strong because we're relying on the strong one. So friends, God ordains our trial not to hurt us, but to show us our weakness, that we might know his merciful power in our lives. See how it works in the Christian life. So different to the world. Remember how Paul speaks of a thorn in his side. And he says he prays three times. He's prayed three times for God to remove it. And God hadn't done that. He said, this was to keep me from getting proud. And keep him dependent, humbly, upon God's grace as all sufficient. Do you have a thorn in your side? Do you have a thorn in your side today? Something you've prayed about? Physical ailment? Some relational issue you've prayed about? 
and it hasn't gone away. It hasn't been relieved. The Lord has seen fit to keep it there. Well, now you know what it's for. To keep you from getting proud, to keep you dependent on him, that you might receive his grace and his mercy. Remember, we t- I talked about Job. James tells us in James chapter 5, verse 11, that the purpose, what the purpose of the Lord's suffering in Job's life was. He says, you've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. In Job, in the book of Job, as this trial goes on in Job's life, then God breaks in and, and appears to Job in this whirlwind. He doesn't tell Job why he ordains the trials in his life. He just shows him himself. He shows him his wisdom, his power, his grace, so that in the end, Job is saying, I thought I knew you, but now I really know you. And he's repenting in dust and ashes in a deeper relationship with the Lord. Some people say, don't they, God will never give you more than you can bear. This isn't true. Of course he gives you more than you can bear so that you can go to him to bear it for you. Then you get the mercy and he gets the glory. But for us, it's often like you're in the gym. When were the last time any of us were in the gym? I don't know. But if you cast your mind back to when you might have hit a gym sometime, you're on that bench press machine and the bar is down on your chest with so much weight that you can't shift it and it's slowly crushing you to death and this huge guy 250 pounds of muscle walks by and he says come on let me lift that off you for you and you say no I can do it myself and all the time you're slowly having the life squeeze out of you it's what we're like so many times with God isn't it no I can do it myself instead of rolling our burdens onto him the one who can bear them for us See, when by our uh, afflictions, by our trials, we are kept dependent daily on God's mercy, we're constantly then reminded of his mercy and we then become merciful people to others. So we get mercy down from God and we bend that mercy out horizontally to others. And that's how Paul refrains from retaliation in the face of those who do him wrong. He's constantly aware that he's a mercy case himself. So he opens up his heart with mercy to others. In that way then, if if we are appropriating God's mercy like that, we don't keep our foot on the neck of those who have done us wrong. Hard-hearted, wanting to get our pound of flesh, unforgiving. No, we realise how much we've been forgiven. That's our posture, and then we freely forgive others. It is quite remarkable how being soaked in God's mercy makes us seek to serve others rather than lord it over others. Loving enemies instead of punishing them. Remember, these super apostles, remember how they demeaned Paul's character and his ability and his reliability? Paul said he would come to us. You can't trust Paul. You can't trust Paul's gospel. That's the inference. They preach a different gospel. So they want to undermine Paul, his character and his gospel. What does Paul do? He doesn't retaliate. Instead, he tells them why he didn't come. He says, it was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Verse 23. 
Not that we lord it over you, your faith, but we work with you for your joy. You see what Paul's saying here. He explains it more in the first verse of chapter 2. Though there have been some improvements in Corinth since his first letter, there are still some stubborn resistance. And Paul is basically saying this. He's basically saying, last time I visited you, it was so painful for me and it was so painful for you because I needed to rebuke you that it's best if I don't come this time. Because if I come again, I'm going to have to rebuke you again. And it's going to be too painful for me and too painful for you. I don't want to come to you in severity again. Instead, it's best if I withdraw my presence. I don't withdraw my heart. I just withdraw my presence. It, my heart remains open to you. But I withdraw my presence so the Holy Spirit may work and lead you to godly repentance. And our relationship is preserved. I think there is so much wisdom here, friends. Aren't there times where you try and minister to others, minister biblical wisdom to others, and they consistently resist you? You know that. They might even turn upon you. It's amazing the times people ask you for counsel. You give them counsel and then they turn on you for the counsel you've given them that they've asked for. And you say, I didn't even ask you to ask me. But, but you do that, right? And, then, and they resist you. They turn on you even. You know what? Sometimes... In the example of the apostle, it's best to take the long-term view and leave them be, not out of retaliation, but in love and in the hope that God would lead them to repentance. If you press in and keep pressing in, it can ruin the relationship. That is why a pastor is not to lord it over your faith. We pastors cannot force faith in you. Instead, our work is a service for your sake. Sometimes it's better to bear the pain in order that God would work and the relationship is preserved. It's a great model Paul gives us of humble servant leadership. He shows a heart of what, what we could call paternal leniency. Paternal leniency. So it's a great word for fathers here, young and old. I think sometimes we think as fathers, uh, even as parents uh, overall, we need to correct every error our children make. And if we don't, we're being cowardly or not fulfilling our duty. And so we dive in and it becomes more about getting it off our chests than doing our children good. Even though they might be in the wrong and a rebuke could be justified. Paul says, sometimes just hold back. Withdraw your presence, not your heart, and trust the Lord for the results. That's amazing discernment, amazing patience and wisdom. So brothers and sisters, I suggest we need a long-term view of ministry in the home and in the church and also with unbelievers around us. I think some of us can know the, the pain of unbelieving family members and every time there's a, a gathering for birthdays and Christmases, it can be a point of tension and you feel your need to bring the gospel in all of its power at every family meeting and then what happens is... There's an argument and it spirals upwards and then suddenly you've got angry and you're sinning and you told them the gospel. You just withdraw, just ease off a little bit there, not pressing in and trust the Lord for the result. All the while you're preserving that relationship as he may open a door later on. For, for that kind of heart, you need the father heart of Paul, even God's own father heart, full of mercy and patience. So God is a merciful father. 
His mercy comes to us in sending his son to die for us. And his mercy comes to us by the many daily comforts he gives us. For he is also the God of all comfort. The God of all comfort. That's the third title. And he is the God of all comfort who comforts us in all of our afflictions. So any comfort you need is found in him. And it's for all afflictions. There is not one affliction in this room today, not one affliction he is not present in and has not tailored and makes his comforts for that. Think of certain afflictions. I'll name a few. Infertility. Death. Depression. Betrayal. Sickness. Financial problems. Relational strife. This goes on. And there is a total supply from your God for every emergency. Total supply. This word comfort here, what does it mean? It has a sense of encouragement and sympathy and strengthening, but also admonishment. We tend to think, you know, it's just the one, but no, there's an admonishment. It's an arm round the shoulder, but it's also a kick to get us started again. Think of Elijah. Think of Elijah. First Kings. 18, he's just, he defeats the prophets of Baal. It's this moment of spiritual triumph. But by 1 Kings 19, he's running away from Jezebel's threats and he's sitting under a tree and he's depressed. What does God do? Sends an angel to minister to him, to give him some food and water, to get him to horror. But then God comes to Elijah and says, come on, Elijah, what are you doing here? Get back to work. Comfort of God, sympathizing, strengthening, Comfort of God, even admonishing. That's true encouragement. It's not coddling. It's biblical comfort. And friends, we are obsessed in our culture about avoiding suffering and pain, about coddling even. It's about health and safety above all. Children are never allowed to feel any pain, take any risks or fail at anything. Everyone's a winner, aren't they, at sports day? And think half the schools in the country now, no one wins and loses, no trophies for anything. And everyone's a winner in case little Johnny gets depressed and feels low self-esteem. The idea of self-preservation then, even coddling, even individualism has crept into the church such that some churches are preaching a therapeutic gospel rather than a true gospel and a cross-shaped Christian life. Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom. Paul says you will experience even the sufferings of the Lord Jesus there in verse 5. So think of it like this, in your sufferings there's a kind of fellowship that you are privileged to have with our Lord. Not that you make atonement for sin, not that I make atonement for sin, but there's a, that's his unique suffering work. But in union with him, in following with him, in, in taking his yoke upon you, you experience the afflictions of Christ. And God then strengthens your Christian witness. So you suffer abundantly for Christ's sake. God then abundantly pours comfort into your life. And when the world looks at the church, they don't see a people full of strength in human resources. They see a limping body of people sustained by inexplicable comforts. And they say, how is this so? We are not the greatest army in the world in here. I'm looking around, okay? If we go out to, to war in human strength, we're not going to last too long. 
but in strength of the Lord, oh, there's a powerful witness. There's a powerful witness. You see how we stay together in the midst of pandemics, in the midst of relational strife, how we persevere in the midst of illnesses, how we love one another, how we forgive, how we grow unto death. We stay the course. And they say, how is this so? And in the days ahead, to be a Christian in this world, to stand on biblical truth in the areas even of uh, the family and marriage and sexuality, you will be persecuted. You will experience affliction. But you will stand strong by the grace of God as he sustains you with his mercy and his comfort. And as we get holy in the church, as we stand firm, they will look and they will see a joy-filled counterculture. They will say, how is it so? And we will point them to the gospel. So our comfort in affliction serves our Christian witness to the world. But it also serves our Christian ministry to one another. Look at verse 4. The purpose of our receiving comfort in our affliction is so that we might comfort others in theirs. The idea is there down in verse 6 and 7. So when you suffer pain or sickness or disappointment, instead of becoming bitter, you open your heart to God, you receive his comfort, and you become much more sympathetic to others. We know that, don't we? When you've gone through a season of trial, doesn't it make you a little bit more tender towards others who are suffering? And it is amazing when you go through particular trials, how God then will bring you someone who's experiencing that same trial. It's like he's tailor-made yours, given you comfort that you might just give give that person comfort. But here is the thing. You must receive the afflictions in order to receive the comforts. It is only in the valley of the shadow of death that you experience the comfort of the shepherd by your side. So it is the suffering Christian who knows God experientially. Then you've got capacity to offer others comfort. So brothers and sisters, there are a thousand reasons flowing in and out of our afflictions. We only see a few. God sees everything. So when you face the fiery furnace of affliction, you've got to think like this. God is preparing for me a greater work ahead. It may be a work of evangelism as I display Christ's sufferings and comfort in my body. It may be a work of counselling in the local church with the comfort I receive that I give to others. It may be that your suffering even sets the church to pray. What about Michael in hospital? How, we, how you've prayed for him. So that Paul says in verse 11, help us in prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. As you pray, pray for, for Michael, the, the, the praise goes up to God as he answers. As I close, I know that some of us here today may have experienced and will experience losses that I don't even know about and that will not be maybe fully resolved in this life. Your sufferings are so deep, inexplicable, painful, deep affliction that no one can quite understand. But the Lord understands. The Lord understands. And for every one of you today who feels like you're being crushed by your suffering, you need to know this. That, as Paul says in chapter 4, this light momentary affliction is preparing us, preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. 
and you can know that God will bring you someone in the future that you may comfort in a particular way. As painful as it is for you today, it is temporary. And it is lightweight compared to that weight of glory that you will experience forever in heaven. So, think how painful and weighty your trials have felt. Think how much more glorious that's going to be. It gives you a a kind of a reverse feeling of the weight of glory that's to come. How great that glory will be. I know this church has experienced many wounds over the years, much affliction and suffering, and you can testify, I know people here from years gone by, you can testify that God has never done you wrong, and he will never do you wrong, and he will never fail to bring any of us comfort in our afflictions. He has marked this church by the Calvary cross and his manifold mercies. So what are you suffering now? Where will you go? Where else can you go? To your Father, who has eternal rivers of mercy for you, who has all kinds of every comfort that you need to strengthen you in order that you might strengthen others. You see, the problem with the church is the church is far too strong. But if the sufferings of this present day weaken us so that we humble ourselves and pray, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. If it does that to us, then God may just grant revival in this land and in the church as his power is made perfect in weakness. Let's pray. Also, Father, thank you for blessing us even with your word this morning. I pray that you would do us good, that this word would be implanted in our hearts and that we would be strengthened, comforted, and that we would go out from here with the gospel on our lips. In Jesus' name, amen.